Welcome. My name is Natasha Sherman, and I am your host. My guest today is Jeffrey Deskovic. He is the executive director of the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation. This is part two of an interview with him, and Jeffrey was wrongfully convicted for rape and murder at the age of 16, sent to prison. After 16 years, he was exonerated, and since then, 2006, he has created the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So I want you to tell me a little bit about the foundation, but first I want to ask you, I want to go back to you came home and all of a sudden a new life is confronting you. You're thrilled to be out, but how do you adjust? You've been 15 years outside of society. What do you do? Well, it was, <laughs> well, I mean, I had to learn a lot of technology. I mean, and I, and I had to do a lot of uh, work with mental, mental health professionals and help me to cope with the aftermath of having been uh, wrongfully imprisoned. I had to learn a lot of things for the first time. I mean, I had never shopped for my own or paid rent. I had to get a driver's license, try to establish uh, credit. I, it was a lot. It was a, there was it's a like lot being to it. Dropped on another planet. Uh, exactly or in a different right. Culture. Uh, yes. Well, yeah, definitely. In fact, I've even said that before in other other interviews. <laughs> uh, you know, it feels like they're on a different uh, planet. How, does it feel like? Does it still chafe, or does it feel comfortable at this point? It feels more comfortable, but at, at times it doesn't quite feel normal. Sure, and that may never happen. Yeah, um, I think that with, you know, speaking from my own perspective, you know, from my own experience and also from talking with other people who are exonerated, I think that, you know, you can, my symptoms start, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being, you know, the highest. I think you can go from a 10 down to a 5. I, I don't think I'll ever get to, to 0 or, right. or 1. Right, So, um, you know, uh, you had some lawsuits. You were wrongfully convicted, and every step along the way, there were things that happened that were not right. Right. And people were doing things that are, were not really legal. They were lying. They were, you know... Um, withholding information. Withholding they were information. committing misconduct. So exactly. you then had some lawsuits. Yes. And it seems to me that if I remember it correctly, you came away with $8 million? Yes? Yeah. About 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 that. I, right. I mean, the, I mean the, the different parties paid more than that. But as you know, you have to pay the expenses, and yes. then the lawyers take a third. So in reality, you keep fifty-five to sixty percent. So, yeah. so uh, you know, having been in prison, having lost fifteen, sixteen years of your life, it would be easy to go, hey, see you later. I'm I'm out of here, and buy an island, you know. <laughs> and yet, you chose to take. 1.6 million of that? 1.5 million. 1.5 mm -hmm. and start this foundation. Yes. So tell us about the foundation. What, why, what are your goals, and what is the status of it? Sure. I, well, firstly, when I, was, when I was initially released, I mean, I, you know, it took about five years for me to receive any compensation. But during that time period, I was an individual advocate. So I wore different hats. I became a professional speaker. Uh, I became a lobbyist, so I lobbied elected officials in New York and Connecticut to pass wrongful conviction prevention measures. Uh, I became like a quasi-public persona doing a lot of television, radio, and print media uh, If you interviews. hadn't done this, would you have been able to find a job? No, I in fact even though you were exonerated. No, I tried. I tried to do that. I I, always, I, I was always passed over for uh, gainful employment because I didn't have the same level of, of job experience as other applicants, and employers seem to always want somebody who could hit the ground uh, running. 
So I developed this body of work. I got a scholarship from Mercy College, which I used to complete a bachelor's degree. Uh, later, I got a master's from, from John Jay. And so after about five years, I was able to settle uh, with some of the defendants in the lawsuits, as you mentioned, and I wanted to take the, my advocacy work to the next level. So we wanted to continue. We have four uh, prongs. Uh, we raise awareness when we seek legislation. So kind of like what I did before, just more of same but with the support staff. But then most importantly, we have two other components which I could never do on my own. We have the exonerative component, which we try to free people, both in cases with DNA and, and without. So, to so the Innocence Project only works with people with DNA. Yes, exactly, which that's right. only around in 5 to 12 percent of all serious felony cases. So you have expanded that into yes. non-DNA cases. Okay. Yes, exactly right. And so to carry that out, I have on staff uh, an attorney, an investigator, and, and a paralegal. And then we also have uh, the reintegrative component, which we try to help people put their lives back together again. So the foundation, we, we have an apartment that's leased, which we've provided short-term housing for several exonerates who were released and didn't have a place uh, to go. Uh, and do After that, so you give them a place to stay, but how do you teach them? Right to live in society if they have nobody well, we try we keep regular we keep regular contact with them uh, to the extent that the employees sometimes have contacts with uh, managers business owners if we're able to ref sometimes we're able to refer them to places for for employment and then also there's like a type of camaraderie I mean which is more like I guess it's a combination of friendship and almost like a sponsor like in a AA sure. so I, I personally spend time with a lot of the exonerees so they they find that as a stabilizing factor. In terms of uh, the status of the organization, so we, um, you know, I set, it out, I set aside enough money to run the organization for about three years. So between now and December, you know, the staff and I were, you know, making our final push to make the organization uh, sustainable. Uh, hopefully we'll, we will be able to do that and keep going. But uh, on the other hand, if we're not, then you know, I'll unfortunately have to close my doors. And you know what's really, uh you know, everybody wants to make a difference on some level, I think, or most people do. And we all have different choices, different things that are our kind of resonate for us. I think in this, part of the reason maybe people don't, um, aren't drawn to it immediately, they're drawn to it, they, they listen to the stories, but they don't then take the next step, right. is because it hasn't actually, in their mind, touched their world. Right. So... You know, if someone has a family member who died of uh, cancer, you know, then that has touched their world. But what people don't realize is it touches our world every day because, A, we have people running around free who have committed the crimes and continue to commit crimes. Then we have people coming out who have been falsely accused, but that, now their lives can be a shambles and they have a hard time integrating into society. And the other thing is it can happen to any of us. If we don't get involved, it could happen to any family member where somewhere along the way, they show up on someone's radar screen and that process starts. So I think part of the uh, equation is really getting people to understand this is not as distant from you as you think it is. A absolutely, absolutely correct. You know, and just to drive home the, the human aspect of it, uh, in my, the two years of my foundation's existence, we've helped exonerate uh, William Lopez, who had been incarcerated wrongfully for 23 and a half years in a non-DNA case at, out of uh, Brooklyn, New York. Uh, his daughter was a year and a half at the time that he was wrongfully convicted. And by the time he emerged back out, she's 25 years old, fully grown, married with her own uh, kids.
Yeah, and, and how do you do that to another human being? You know, when you're wrongfully imprisoned, it's not merely the loss of freedom either. There's, you know, the violence and, 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 and abuse that goes on while in the prison system. But beyond that, I mean, you miss births, deaths, holidays. Uh, for me, it was school prom, graduating high school, finishing my education at a, at a normal age. Uh, Did you ever date? No. Before you went to prison, you never had a date? No, I didn't. How has that impacted you now? Well, I frankly, I found it very. Uh, when I found it very difficult to approach women that I'm that I'm attracted to. I mean, I think it's a different set of approach dynamics in, in different <laughs> settings. So if you're not quite so sure how to go about it, then yeah. it's half the time you don't, and the other half it doesn't quite go so well. And the other part of that, and this is kind of like the uh, post wrongful conviction stigma. Yes, is. Okay, you were incarcerated wrongfully for 16 years, but you were still there. So how much of that actually rubbed off on you? So who yes. wants to go out with the guy that spent 16 years in prison? Yeah. Ken, is it safe to be alone someplace with you? So that's kind of um, that's kind of what. And how do you answer the, the normal getting to know you questions? Well, what do you do? Well, I run a foundation. That's great. What does it do? And I explain. Well, that's even better. Yeah, I read about that last and, week. And but how but come? How, yes. Okay. But well, now, one of them. right? That, that and you can the whole like the air is sucked out of the room at that point. You know, and it's interesting. The because whole thing is different. I, I was uh, reading somewhere about somebody talking about having been diagnosed with cancer. Okay. People then no longer related to him as the person. Right. He was now his disease. Right. So people come in and the only conversation and the only thing is you might be somebody who's dying and you have cancer. And, and whoever he was disappears. That, but see, that's exactly what I experienced in those situations. Yeah. But then even in terms of being on an advocacy trail, one of the things I've really fought hard to establish is you know my credentials a as an advocate. Yes, I was wrongfully imprisoned 16 years. And yes, that is what motivates and drives me. But I'm more than that. I, I mean, I, I understand yes. the issues beyond the lens of my own experience. I mean, I do have a master's degree. I did write my thesis on the causes of wrongful conviction and the reforms of Above and beyond what happened uh, in my in my case, and, and I do consider myself to be a professional and, and an advocate. But to get everyone else to recognize that is not always so easy. Yeah, and you know, people are complex. So you have your mission, and you have the thing that compels you. But you also like music, and you yes. also love sports, and you also right. love wrestling. Yes. You know, so you're a complex human being. But it gets narrowed down through that kind of myopic lens of prison. Wrongfully convicted, right? But still in prison for fifteen years. Guess what? Sixteen, but yes. Sixteen, yeah. yes. You're yeah. right. I'm sure it's tough to deal with. Uh, it is. I, I don't. I can't tell you how often. You know, I, I wish my background was something different, so I had different answers to give. Yeah. In a minor way, you know, you kind of alluded to it, to it earlier in terms of this, you know, the stigma and mistreatment for people that are incarcerated for sex offenses. I mean, one of the ironic things is I remember thinking when I was in prison. Uh, Gee, you know, I, I wish I was imprisoned for something other than a sex offense. <laughs> right. Even though it's a false charge, but right. even to, to have some charge other than that, just yes. to not have to deal with that, and now just a different version of the same of the same thing to wish that my background yeah. was, what was were something. You of? Yeah, exactly. I mean, wish would that I could be who I am, but just coming at it just from an yes. academic or concerned professional, not mm -hmm. the first person. But then sometimes, not always, the 
the most effective people for change are those who've been or are first person advocates. And so I've kind of, uh, that's kind of, I kind of look at what happened to me in a grander uh, scheme sure, of bigger things, picture. bigger, bigger picture. Like yeah. this is what I'm meant to do in life. This, right. this is my mission. And so if I can accomplish this, you know, freeing people and preventing them from happening to them and helping them reintegrate all, all facets of this, then that can be my silver lining, yeah. which I take some meaning out yeah. of. So let's talk about tips and tools. What should people know? Yes, uh, people should be aware of what the real state of the criminal justice system is, what the systemic deficiencies are that lead to wrongful convictions, and you know, more importantly, what could be done to pre prevent them. Uh, so uh, to go over a few of those, uh, coerce, we covered coerce, coerce false confessions. We didn't mention what the reforms are there. So to slow down the rate of wrongful convictions caused by uh, false confessions, we have the reforms of videotaping interrogations from beginning to end. So do they do that now? Are they compelled to do that well, in New York State? No, they don't do that in, in New York State. Certain uh, jurisdictions are voluntarily doing it, but it's not, uh, it's not mandatory. Uh, then we need uh, better identification procedures because misidentification is the leading cause of wrongful convictions in 75 percent of the 332 DNA proven wrongful convictions. We need to have a... So there's, this is partly witnesses and then witnesses who later recant and yet that's ignored? Yeah, that's, that's a, yeah that and the identification procedures, whether you're talking about a photo array or a lineup, they aren't doing the best practices and so you have things like people unduly sticking out, you have mm. intentional bias or even unintentional, which is why the double blind method should be uh, uh, utilized. Uh, sequential viewing, looking at one person at a time, ruling them in or out based on memory rather than doing a comparative who looks closest to what mm. our memories were. So that's another example. Uh, having a standardized evidence preservation system. You know, we talked before that DNA is only present in 5 to 12 percent of all serious felony cases, but in those, within that realm where testing is even a possibility, the first hurdle that someone has to jump through if you're lucky enough to be in that category is whether the evidence has been lost or destroyed. So that's another thing. Uh, having a better system of public defense. So some of the... And what would that look like? And you mm -hmm. know something, it's interesting because all of this it's going to take a while to build and it's challenging yes. and there are a lot of obstacles and hurdles. On a day to just practical, if you're arrested, what would you tell somebody the minute you're arrested? The minute you're arrested, you should insist on a lawyer and do not speak to the police until they provide you with the lawyer. That will level the playing field. There will be no coercion. Even if you're a kid? Even if you're a kid, even if you're innocent. You know, that's an ironic thing that false confession experts have determined through their studies is that the innocence of a suspect actually works against them because they think, well, I haven't done anything wrong, so why shouldn't I talk to the police? What can possibly happen? But I can possibly happen. Yes. Yeah. So that's good. So anybody, no matter how old you are, if you get arrested, you ask for a lawyer and you ask for your parents, yes, if you're, if you're young? Yeah, but, I, but the lawyer is more important because we found in some instances, well, I'm not a false confession expert. I've studied it, but I'm not on that. Right. Right. But the parents sometimes can be co-opted by the authorities, by the police, and turned into their agent. Well, come on, Johnny. I mean, if they have you here and they're doing all this, you just just tell them the truth. Come on, just tell them we can go home afterwards, and you know this will all be you know this will be understandable. And they, so the they, parents should the, know as well. They should know as well. Yeah. Okay, so now let's get back to public defender because a lot of people end up with a public defender. Yes. And clearly, they're not 
operating always in your best interest. Right. Okay, they're operating a system rather than... Right, exactly. Okay, so then what should you be asking for? What should you watch out for? And do we have any, any way out? Yes, a cautious yes. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to give practical advice if you're in that situation, and then I'll talk about the broader systemic okay, reform. All right, so on a practical level, uh, what you should do as, as a defendant is you should stay on top of your lawyer, uh, keep track whatever 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 research they're going to do, whatever witnesses they're going to talk about. Do they act? Do they actually? Are they actually doing them? So check back with them, find out, and insist. What is your strategy? How are we going to deal with this witness and that witness? And so, never accept. Trust me. Never accept. Trust me. No, it should be okay. I trust you, but show me. Okay, so that that's very important. I think it's important to be proactive in in uh, one's one's defense. Mm -hmm. Okay, now in terms of systemic, what, what a really good public defender system should look like is that there should be one statewide system. So that would enable there to be uh, quality control and oversight. It would prevent, because uh, in, in rural areas, as bad as the public defender system is in general, in rural areas, the resources are even more scant. So a statewide system would prevent that. Uh, have, there would be, it would enable there to be a body that promulgates standards. Okay, so there's that part of it. And so also that those lawyers who have been found to have rendered ineffective representation won't be in position to do that again. Ah, uh, good. And then... Being held accountable. Right. And then uh, some of the uh, institutional handicaps that are inherent within the public defense system need to be addressed. For example, we need to reduce caseloads. Like in the Bronx, for example, it's not unusual for one public defender to represent more than 100 clients. Think about that for a minute. Now, if you've been to college... Okay, imagine carrying 10 classes at once. I mean, how could you possibly do your best work? Now, say 100, and now it's not a grade, it's someone's freedom. So that, putting an even playing field uh, so that there's equal manpower resources for investigation and experts between a public defender and uh, the prosecution. Equal pay for both sides, so the best legal talent doesn't go to one side or into, mm. public, or into private practice, then putting them, putting them beyond the, uh, the reach. Of, of uh, most so people. So what is it going to take to make that happen? It's, because, mm -hmm. you know, again, unless, you're highly, unless your feet are being held to the fire, mostly people operate in the default position. Yes. Okay? So where are their feet being held to the fire? I think, well, in order to accomplish the, in order to accomplish this goal, I think that firstly we need to continue to raise public awareness hence media interviews and public events. But then also I think that we need to encourage the populace a as they learn about these systemic deficiencies and what the horrible impacts of them is. They need to contact their local uh, elected officials, their statewide senators and assembly people and also the, the federal representatives. We need uh, legislation. So as long as the, the politicians think that the status quo is acceptable to all of us, not, nothing's going to change. So that's essential. So we need to raise your voice. Raise your voice. And then we need to educate the elected officials uh, also. And when there's wrongful conviction events, we need people to come out, show up. When there are entities such as my foundation, but other organizations as well, uh, we need we need to support those. You know, the president, regardless of his politics, not here to comment on that one way or the other, but he raised a hundred million dollars with donations ranging mostly from the ten to hundred dollar range so we you know we need to get behind these because it takes the bottom line is it takes it takes money to do these cases to hire the hire the staff and do all the work necessary to uh, exonerate people and if your doors close in December yes we're back to the few organizations that exist that will only do DNA cases right. and then there is no real venue for other people 
yeah, I would accept there's a few other places, not very many, but that's where we're, that's where we're back to. Yeah, unfortunately. So what would you do? What would I individually? If your doors closed. I would. I still have intentions of going to law school next next September, mm -hmm. and so when I finish with that, I think that you know I would. Uh, I would like to. My second act, I guess, would be I'd like to run for public office mm -hmm. where I can try to address the problem that way. But really, it's not the same because it wouldn't have the same sure. exonerative component. And really, you know, I intended for this to be my legacy, mm -hmm. which far outlived me, and you know, it would be really hard for me sure you know but be, yeah so it'd be really hard for me if that happened i mean i would still do some individual advocacy work but again i mean uh, the the cases i mean some of the cases were so close to exonerating people we're just like a half step away from being in position to sit down with different district attorneys or even present in court and just use the adversarial process so you know i, I stay awake at night thinking about what's going to happen with those cases because I know no one's going to take them over. I can delude myself and say that they will, but I, I know that they won't. Yeah. It's, it's a tough thing to have to take a look at and think that it's a possibility. So what is it that, again, you know, you're looking for people to donate some small amount of money or some organization or... So I'm looking for small donors. I'm looking for mid-sized and large donors. I'm looking for board members. I'm looking for uh, celebrities, whether that's an athlete or an actor or somebody with a voice to throw some support, uh, an ambassador, try to attra attract more uh, more attention to, yeah. to the organization. Uh, maybe sometimes uh, large companies, they, they have a philanthropical aspect of it. Mm -hmm. So maybe if you're an employee there, you could, you could suggest that that entity take a look at us to mm -hmm. uh, be potentially be a recipient of uh, of, of funding, so those things, and then, then I think that there's also a space for what's you know it's called uh, in kind contributions or services which have a certain amount of value which could uh, further the mission that we're doing. Like what? Well, for example, uh, pub public relations things with on uh, what you know web web development, social media, uh, those are some things. Uh, definitely uh, exposure and awareness. So. Uh, if you are working at or have access to people are in the media, non-traditional media, traditional media, the blogosphere, wherever. So opportunities to uh, make further appearances, so to speak, of one of one kind or another, are, would also uh, uh, be helpful. So there are a lot of lot of different things. It doesn't just have to be money. No, it doesn't. But right. that is an important part of it of because course. at the end of the day, I mean, the employees, you know, they're not. They, they, have to still have to, they still have to pay their bills, and they yes. can't afford to work for free. Yes, so. totally get that. So now another thing I want to ask you, you do a monthly radio show with someone called Koji. Yes, I do. Tell us a little bit about that, because then that's another way for people to tune in to what's happening. Yes, the show is called I've Been Falsely Accused. We've been doing the show maybe about six months to a, to a year. I mean, time has flown by. Uh, so uh, I came on, Koji, Koji is a uh, radio personality. He has a show called Conversations with Koji, which is on uh, 1230 KLAV, which airs in Las Vegas, but is streamed through the Internet. So we have uh, multi-state and even international following. So he uh, had he had me on his show, uh, which was just Conversations with Koji, and uh, he had had other exonerees on there. And then not too long after that, he recontacted me and said, look, I want to... I want to donate a show a month uh, called, well, it was subtitled, uh, I've Been Falsely Accused and I'd Like You to Be My Co-Host. I think you add credibility and I think you can help me get additional um, guests. So 
we decided to do the show together uh, once a month, and then he's expanded it now. We, we, we do it uh, twice a month. Uh, he obviously is in the studio. He has a producer. I, I call in the show, and we, end, we interview guests. We bring in exonerees. We bring in family members. Uh, sometimes we have experts on the field. And most dramatically, most dramatically, sometimes we've had, we've had people call in the show from prison you know, who are wow. fighting to establish their and you can even hear in the background every fifteen minutes or so a message flashes, you know, through the screen. You know, this is a you know, this is a uh, call from a state you know, state correctional facility and wow. right. But you know, we talked about before the show, the media jumps on there's all this media attention that comes after people who are, are exonerated but really you need the help on the front end to get the word out there yeah. sometimes the people are trying to secure legal representation at other times they have legal representation but are trying to call more attention to their case because often what happens outside the courtroom can be just as important as what happens in the courtroom right wow so i have one last question to ask you you know you went into prison at 1617 your friends visited for a while, and well, then yeah, that yeah, stopped. Very shortly, yeah, maybe so like two years. Yes. was there anybody who consistently came, or did you ultimately find yourself to be, you know... Right, well, the person who came consistently, I would have to say, would, would, have, been, uh, would have been my mother. Mm -hmm. But in the last uh, five years, I mean, the long trip, you know, kind of wore on. It was like three and a half to four and a half hours, and, you know, it was expensive to go. And she developed a few health problems with her, you know, her back and uh, her feet. And so eventually I was lucky uh, if I saw her once every six months. And you have no siblings? I, I, have, a younger, I have a younger brother. He came to see me uh, three times in the 16 years and not at all in the last decade. Gosh, you so know. That's part of the rebuilding, though, is that yeah. I've tried to reestablish family ties, and so I do make the family rounds on, on holidays just because they're blood. But, uh, but you know, it's honestly, Again, it's, 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 just, it's just, it's surface level interaction is, yeah. is really what it is on a sentimental basis because really I'm a different person now. They don't fully sure. know who I am as a person. They don't really understand my world, and I try to explain, but it's somewhat beyond their grasp fully. For me, again, it just it's very highlights difficult. the cost of uh, the right. human cost and, uh, and the cost in our society of the system running ineffectively, of being wrongfully convicted. It's like everything falls apart. I would agree. And just to build a different facet of, of cost, you know, there, there's other financial impl implications. I mean, the cost of wrongfully incarcerating somebody. Uh, the governor in, one of his, in New York, in, in his State of the State address, said it was $60,000 a year. So now that's being spent to wrongfully imprison somebody. You, you've removed the taxpayer who should be paying in. And then once they are emerged, they're owed compensation. But that's going to cost the public mil sure. millions of dollars. And there's all the legal costs along the way, all the court proceedings Absolutely. and lawyers. And so we're unfortunately we're at the end of our time. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for being willing to share a very personal, gut-wrenching story and for the work that you're doing to advocate for others, like making that your mission instead of hiding, hiding out. So thank you. Well, thank it's you very much for having me uh, on your show. And I um, definitely appreciate uh, you know, your passion and your empathy. They come through loud and clear. And I hope that that's Thank clear you. to all of our uh, viewers. And I this invite was the everybody. Most, this was the most heartfelt interview I've ever done. Thank from you. Thank, Thank you very you. much. My name is Natasha Sherman. Thank you for joining us.